I was I was a judge up at the uh, San Francisco World Spirits Competition this oh weekend. Oh my Yay! It was a huge honor for myself, but I've been talking all weekend. You're probably hearing my voice. It was like we were doing the podcast up there and interviewing different judges. I wanted to kind of give people a behind-the-scenes view of what it was like to be like a judge in those kind of competitions. I found it to be a very so bizarre sorry, world from the outside, and so I kind of wanted to show people what it was like to kind of get into it for the first time. But at any rate... Um, I've been drinking. I'd like. I seriously like peeled off all the skin in my mouth. Oh no! Because we're spitting all day, but yeah. some of the proof is like when you when you uh, hold it. There, when you yeah. do like two hundred tastes a day, it's like I, yeah. I'm not kidding. It's a warrior. Spit, That's a warrior. It absorbs through the skin in your mouth, and you end up like you can spit all you want. It's still gonna catch a buzz. Like by lunchtime, you're like, I need food, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. Whoa, it's a serious stuff. Wobbly leg. I was really nervous going in, and to think that, you know, I'm a professional smeller and taster, that's a pretty heady idea to wrap your mentation around, you know? I was uh, really babied and nurtured and generously welcomed into the world. We recorded an audio diary. We had uh, Andrew and his wife Lauren, our podcast crew, come up to San Francisco with me, and uh, we recorded interviews with all the different judges because there were so many different people coming from so many different backgrounds. And at any rate, Andrew cut it all together for you right here. Enjoy it. Listen while you're driving, but that means you can't be drinking as you're driving and listening and texting and everything else you do while driving. Just listen to the podcast. We have five new judges this year, and uh, we'd like to welcome them, and I want to introduce them, and I wish you'd stand and wave or indicate yourself. <laughs> uh, and, uh, the lovely uh, Pedro Shanahan. <laughs> he is the uh, spirits guide of uh, 213 Hospitality, which is the uh, Moses group in uh, you know, the best bars in L.A. So how does it get to be Pedro and the Shanahan? It's a multicultural world, you know? Once they start mixing, there's not a damn thing they can do about it. So we're here talking to Kim Hasserud. Kim, how did you get into this world of being able to like smell and taste at such a high level? You know, I've been um, a bartender pretty much since graduating from high school. Uh, so I've been around kind of the spirits industry and making industry uh, and making drinks for, for a long time. Um, but I started my own consultancy in 2001 called Liquid Architecture. So I create a lot of uh, cocktails and beverage programs for a lot of national accounts. So like for a lot of hotels and restaurant groups and, and so forth. So you have to be able to make cocktails that are easily replicable for many, many people. You have to make a, like a cocktail list that's kind of going to be across the whole Absolutely. range of businesses. And that, that's kind of my perspective is probably a little bit different than like the, you know, the, the, the trendy mixologist in New York City and that um, I, when I create programs, I have to do it through a pretty rigorous operations lens. So being able to um, know consistency is everything. You know, I have to be able to create programs that are um, rep replicable uh, for like, you know, anything from a, a chain that's 10 stores to 1,000 stores. So that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty important. 
And yeah. you had a cocktail in yesterday's yeah. cocktail competitions. Yeah. <laughs> so that, was that fun for you? I did. That was super fun. I did. We did it with uh, um, Sammy Hagar's Santo, which is mezquila, kind of a combination between mezcal and tequila, which is great because um, I think mezcal for middle America can still be kind of polarizing for a lot of people. And this was a combination of like a really good tequila and a really good mezcal mix. So it's not as not as smoky as some of the mezcals Definitely that are on the not. market. So um, it was a little more approachable. And how often do you actually get to bartend anymore? Is that something, that was kind of a unique day for you? You don't get to bartend that much anymore? You know, I do, I do tons of drink development, and I'm, you know, working in, like, corporate headquarters and things like that. Um, occasionally, like, at events, I get to bartend. Um, we actually have a lab in downtown Phoenix called the Cocktail Collaborative. It's a nonprofit, but we're going to be turning it into a bar. And I'm really kind of embracing the whole garden to glass, but kind of at a next level where we're really focusing on sustainability and going to be kind of implementing and doing lots of practices that can be um, uh, replicable for national accounts. So we're, this is kind of our first foray into that. But uh, we already have the lab, but we're going to be doing it, uh, getting our license probably towards the end of this year. Wow, that's really cool. Where are you based? In Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, hospitality in, in Phoenix. Yeah. yeah, it's a big thing out there. Phoenix, Phoenix is a really big up-and-coming um, community. We've always kind of been, you know, sort of the, the stepsister of Los Angeles <laughs> in many regards. But I say, like, Phoenix has really come into its own over the past few years. I'm one of the producers of Arizona Cocktail Week, too, and we, are, we just went into our seventh year. Um, which is super exciting. So, yeah, it's fun to see that community really, really thrive and grow. What would you say to someone who's might be thinking, like, I don't know how to smell and taste spirits at all. Like, what's kind of like an, an entryway into starting to, like, sip spirits straight, like not a cocktail? Like, yeah. do you have any favorite spirits that you think are more accessible that might bring someone in to be able to kind of get deeper with their own palate? You know, um, I mean, none, none of us started as, as tasters. You know, I mean, I used to be a bartender in Times Square in New York City, you know, making funky cold Medinas, you know, as my first cocktail that I made. So none of us started off as, like, those kind of professional tasters. It's just practice. Um, vodka is probably one of the most difficult categories, but it's something that everybody is familiar with. But if you can start to taste... Um, vodkas and kind of be in tune with some of those subtle differences, like what does the mouthfeel look like? What is the aroma? That's kind of a good first foray. Um, I think it's critically important to blind taste. You cannot be a good taster unless you learn and do blind tastings because, you know, just like when a sommelier is describing a glass of wine to you, right, and says, oh, I can taste notes of, you know, mint and eucalyptus and great, and then they give it to you and taste it, of course you're going to taste that, right? But if you are given a blind taste of taste this next to this next to this, and it forces you to pay attention what's going on into your what's going on in your mouth and in, in your nose, it forces you to pay attention to that. So I would say even at your own bar or at your home, uh, if you have a lot of spirits, um, you know have your have your spouse, or your girlfriend, boyfriend, just say you know what, pour me a blind tasting. Don't even tell me what it is, um, just to force you to pay attention. And even when you go home or when you're having um, you go out to a bar, a restaurant, just start paying attention to what's going on in your mouth. You know, where am I tasting citrus? What's happening to my salivary glands? Um, and I think most of tasting is paying attention. Just paying attention. Being present. Being present and paying attention to what's happening.
All right, we're going to talk to Ziggy Eshelman here, the Grand Dame of the San Francisco Wine and Spirits competition. Why do I call her the Grand Dame? Because you don't know what French means. No, I'm kidding. It, it, it's because she has a penthouse. So obviously she's more important than those of us who are on the ground floor. Actually, I'm sleeping in a sleeping bag out at the bus stop. It's totally not true. Ziggy, what's your background and how did you get into this business? What is it? How did you've been doing this competition for many years? So tell me, how did how did it all start? Uh, over a cocktail, <laughs> honestly. Uh, I had already been judging uh, wine competitions professionally for a number of years, and had been featuring a lot of spirits and talking a lot about spirits and cocktails, both on my radio and television programs. Um, and then in the infancy of this particular competition, the San Francisco International Spirits Competition. Uh, they had asked me would I come in and be a judge and at that very first time that I did that it was interesting because I, I came walking into this really cold sterile room and all these kind of older guys with these like white lab coats on and it was intimidating for me and I was the only girl and I walk in I'm like hey what's going on and they're like looking at me like who's that but 15 years later I'm happy to say that I'm still judging it, and now there's a lot more women involved, which is great. Right on. So, so what is the importance, though, of like doing these competitions? What's the value to the, the average consumer? Why is, does this competition exist? Well, for one thing, uh, the regular consumer, I don't like to say average just because I think... We're like more interesting think, than that, right? I, I think that everybody uh, is above average, unless they're not. <laughs> but... You know, say for instance, like my sister, she lives in Virginia. She's not in this world. Uh, she's a stay-at-home mom. When she goes to the grocery store and she's picking out something, you know, she's entertaining for the weekend uh, or for that evening, she she looks at medals and she wants to see, you know, what what's which vodka is better than the other. She doesn't necessarily know, but she is going to choose something if it's been medaled or has, you know, uh, high accolades. Um, and she, she will feel more confident about that purchase because she knows the professionals have given it a medal or high accolades as opposed to something else that may not have it. And, you know, when we look at shelves anymore and on the, in these grocery stores or liquor stores, wine shops, whatever, uh, there's more choice than ever. And how do we narrow it down? It's like just looking into this sea of oblivion, you know, when you see hundreds and hundreds of bottles on the shelves. So I think for... Uh, a regular consumer, an average consumer, however you want to put it, uh, the everyday person uh, and, and the above average everyday person, they're looking for something to justify their purchase. And I think that having a group of professionals that are experts that truly know the difference between, um, you know, certain types of vodkas, certain types of scotches, certain types of mezcals, tequilas, rums, whatever the category is, uh, they're able to discern which are which are better made and why they should get a medal. And you've been doing this for many years now, so you've seen kind of trends arise. Can you speak about like in the last several years, like where have things been going? And and then I'll ask you, where do you think things are going to go? Well, uh, that's a, it's a that's a pretty deep question. I think that um, you know, years and years ago, things were a lot simpler than they are now. Uh, there's a lot more categories uh, than there there used to be. So, in other words, like vodka used to just be one small category, you know, and now we have several different vodka categories uh, with the kind of 
I guess, infusion of infused vodkas, uh, that became a whole new world. And it also uh, created a whole new demographic. People were buying vodka that may not have bought it before because they wanted something raspberry flavored. They wanted something coconut flavored. And that was easy for them. And then eventually they graduate and then they, you know, then they move on to something that's Fingers not. crossed. Well, well, yeah, it's like just like the white Zinfandel category, you know. Way back in the day when white Zinfandel was created, it put wine in more people's glasses than was ever going to be there, you know. And, and for the first time in American history, as a very young wine drinking uh, country, we had more wine in people's glasses than was ever there. And eventually they graduated. They went on to Chardonnay. They went on to Merlot because they're curious. Uh, but it got more wine in people's hands. And it's the same thing about spirits. We have a lot more distilleries out there now than we used to have. Uh, and we have a lot more categories. So having that wider of a selection has brought to light uh, that there is really truly something for everybody out there. Here we are in the wee hours of the morning of day two of the San Francisco Wine and Spirits competition. I have with me one of the original longtime judges of the San Francisco Wine and Spirits competition, Mr. David Grabshi. David, how did you get into this job and uh, what's your unique talent? How did you become a, a, a spirits test, taster or a professional nose for that matter? That's a good question, Pedro. Uh, first off, passion. I've always been driven by passion, okay? So I started out in the wine business, spent 16 years in the wine business developing my palate, and with the need to know and to find out and ask a lot of questions, uh, I understood a lot of things. You know, you talk to chefs and you talk to people who have had the experience. Once I went on to the spirits side, I also developed my palate because I was always working with really cool brands that had a very small niche market, okay? And once on the tequila side, and now I represent one of the most, you know, important tequila companies in in uh, the world. Okay. And you could go ahead and drop a name for uh, us because we're big tequila lovers here. It's Tequila Siete Leguas. Okay. Yeah, close to my heart. Okay. Yeah, right and family and everything. So. So you've done a lot of traveling down in Mexico. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. It's uh, it's my passion. Um, I, you know, I've been doing this in Mexico since 1988. And uh, today I sit on the, uh, as one of the uh, ambassadors to the CNIT since 2013. And what's the so CNIT? Doing, uh, the, the Consejo Regulador Tequila. Okay. Wow. Sort of the, the, think of it as like the, you know, the commercial side of the, um, the promotion of tequila. Mm -hmm. And then you have the CRT, which is more of the normas, you know, the laws. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what would you say to someone who's like, they want to start to taste spirits, but it seems really intense to them. Like they're a wine drinker or they're a beer drinker. How would you start off like getting used to trying high proof spirits? Well, I, I think, you know, kind of surround yourself with people who have the experience and ask questions. You know, I mean, go on the Internet and just find out, you know, flavors and profiles and aromas. Probably start out with aromas, you know, just uh, familiarize yourself with aromas. And then before you know it, you'll you'll develop those things. And I think everything in life is, is learned, okay? And that goes with the palate too, because if you think how people start when they drink wine, they start out sweet, generally, because they don't want the dry stuff, okay? But eventually their palate gets educated and they'll eventually end up with a more sophisticated palate. Right hope that makes sense because it totally that's the way. It, yeah, and I think the same thing works with food too. You know, mm -hmm. you, when you're young, you're you just kind of 
stuck on certain dishes and whatnot, and then just engaging with uh, chefs and uh, just experiencing. So, that's so I, on the same tip, I want to reverse that question because yeah. myself, I, I taste a lot of high-proof spirits all the mm -hmm. time. But when I go and try to taste wine, I find it really difficult because there's just so much organic matter in that glass and the fermented beverage. It's hard for me to parse what's going on inside a wine glass often. If you're just beginning to taste wine, how do you start sipping and kind of, you know, connecting the dots in your mind between what you have on your tongue and what flavors you're reminded of? Well, I mean, it's a little bit more complicated because you have, <laughs> well, you have, you have different varietals which, which have their own flavor profiles. You have regions, you have countries, um, and terroir, you know, plays a big role, okay? But you could take like Sauvignon Blanc. Well, there are a lot of different styles of Sauvignon Blanc, okay? So the best thing to do is familiarize yourself with it, you know? And there is no right or wrong. I mean, people have their own opinions and, and sometimes uh, they may not agree with uh, but, but that's the beauty of it, you know? <laughs> that's what happens at the judges' tables. That's what happens sometimes when we kind of don't agree with uh, each other's scores. But, you know, I mean, this go around, this, uh, I mean, two great guys on my panel, and, uh, you know, we've, we've been pretty much hitting it uh, almost like 99% most of the time. So it's, it's, it's really cool, yeah. Okay, so we're talking with Mr. Brian Bowden. Brian, how long have you been a judge here at the San Francisco Wine and Spirits Competition? Uh, it's been about six years now that I've been judging this great event. Um, I meet a lot of great people in the industry, and I think it's one of the, it's probably the first class event in the industry. If you get into this event and you get a medal and whatnot, it's the cream of the cream. It's on the top. So what brought you to this competition? What's your background in the, in the industry? Uh, I've been in the industry for over 30 years. And um, based on that, what I've learned from in my buying experience and what I've done and what I've tasted, where I've traveled, um, this has led me to this. And they've asked me to come here and, and be a part of this great event. And so when you are a buyer for like a large business that's buying like tens of thousands of cases of different wines or beers, and is, do you feel like a lot of pressure as a buyer or how do you buy for when you're thinking about millions of people's palates? I think the, the pressure is you, you don't buy for your own palate, you buy for the people's palate. Um, one of the examples is you can buy for small producers and you can make a big impact on what they do. And you, you don't have to think about the biggest producers, but when you buy for your consumer's tastes, that's where you win. And have you ever had the experience of like buying from a smaller producer then and then seeing that you kind of put too much pressure on them and that it, it changed the way that they're making their product? I think as a buyer or a merchant, you've got to look at it and you say, what, what is going to be good for this person versus what's going to be good for that person? And you modify what you do in terms of your negotiations on what's good for both parties. Because at the end of the day, you've got to be, it's got to be good for both parties. Otherwise, you're either going to get stuck with some bad product or you're going to get stuck with too much product. And so you, you have to really balance that. 
And as a buyer, you've got to think about it and you've got to look at your P&L and go, okay, I can afford to do this or I can afford to do that. And then you make it work. And then if you make it work for the small producer, they'll be more loyal to you is what I found out. And you can make a better impact to the consumer with better product. Do you have a personal spirit that you are really passionate about? Something that's like on your home bar, a daily sipper. For someone who's tasted everything in the world of spirits, what's your personal favorite? I'm not going to name a brand, but I would say <laughs> bourbon okay. and then Irish whiskey. <laughs> Those would be the two. Yes. So then you got to think about it and you go, oh, okay. Um, and then during the summer, I would probably go into the lighter spirits. I'd go into vodkas and rums maybe and, and go from there. Do you see anything, uh, what's, what's going to be the next big spirit that's going to be popular um, among the American? Uh, the American palate, I think it's going to be more along the lines of some of the mixed cocktails that they're doing, they're doing overseas. I mean, Negroni has just exploded. And that wasn't a big thing two years ago, three years ago. We had them last night. Yes, we did. <laughs> and I think there's going to be some of those items where there's some creativity. Um, but the key to that is you have to make sure that it's easy for the consumer to make that product. Mm -hmm. So it can't be a product that has, you know, five, six, seven, eight ingredients and you got to muddle and you got to do this, you got to do that. It's got to be a product where it's like two or three ingredients. It's refreshing, it's great, and it fits the season. So Negroni fits the season now. It's spring going into summer. It's refreshing. It's two or three ingredients. I think the hardest thing you have to do with a Negroni is you get the orange peel. Boom. That's the hardest part. <laughs> so the if average... you can peel an orange. <laughs> yeah, the average person at home can make one of those items and be, be fine and, and be good. Um, but when you get into some of the harder to make, you know, cocktails, go to your local bar, find your local, you know, person that can do that and, and do all that stuff. The funnest thing is you go to an on-premise place, you know, whether it's your favorite bar or it's a new bar or it's a new restaurant, and then you ask them, what do you think is the new thing coming up? And they'll make you a cocktail, and you'll go, great. You might go, uh, I can't do that at home, which means, hey, I'm going to come back here, and you're going to make me my favorite cocktail. Um, and you go from there. Right on, man. Well, thanks for taking a little time to talk hey. with us this morning. It was wonderful to meet you. No problem. And thanks for your guidance in, you. in being a judge. So here we are talking with Mr. Jack Robertiello, another one of our judges here at the San Francisco Wine and Spirits Competition. Jack, give us some background. How did you get into this? Where are you from, man? Uh, well, originally I was in the bar and restaurant business many years ago. Uh, it was time to leave the bar and restaurant business, as it is for a lot of people. And uh, I started writing about food and drink uh, almost immediately and have been doing it for 35 or more years. Um, uh, luckily enough for me, I was writing, uh, started writing about spirits just as at the time where the American attitude towards spirits uh, and its qualities and its uh, drinkability changed. So uh, I was sort of in on the ground floor. I was the editor of a magazine called Cheers, which is still around. Uh, it was the first 
magazine that focused on beverages for the on-premise operators. Um, and I've been doing it ever since. And I, I, while I do some consulting and some um, uh, have run some competitions, specifically a long-running Spirits of Mexico that used to be held in San Diego, um, mostly these days I write and uh, judge at competitions like this. So what is the importance of having these kind of competitions in your mind? Well, for me, it's uh, a magnificent opportunity to test and reset your palate and to see what's going on in the world. I mean, I get, like a lot of people here, either because they're in the business or they write about it, I get a lot of samples and I get to do a lot of tasting. And, and I do write for a website, I do, do some tasting notes for them, but that's nothing compared to tasting 40 single malts at a time or 10 uh, single barrel, 11 year and older bourbons. It, it gives you an idea of what's actually going on in the market in a way that you couldn't otherwise get. And um, the difference, of course, for professional tasters compared to consumers is that consumers almost never do this because they want to drink the drink they pay for. Why wouldn't they? But um, you can't do that and stay focused and tell the difference between the first drink and the third drink um, if you're drinking. So the fact that you're, you're well, most people say, wow, that must be fun. Well, in fact, it is fun. Uh, and while it's not uh, labor, it is work. And uh, it, it's, it, it's about the most fun you can have with your clothes on. <laughs> well, we don't have to keep our clothes on, Jack. Uh, <laughs> I know, I've been told I do. I have been told I do. So I know for myself, this is my first time being a judge, and I'm trying to learn from all you guys, but um, I was immediately overwhelmed. On the very first panel, we were just sipping vodka. It was just really confusing to me because it was, I don't really drink vodka. Right. I, I'm used to drinking whiskey and rum and, and tequila and mezcal. And I was really challenged and I found myself getting really confused, my palate. Yeah. Like, I, I was just like, I really yeah. don't know what's happening here. What do you do when you're going through a big line of spirits and all of a sudden you can't place it? You're like, uh, your palate is confused. What, how do you remedy First, that? First, let me say that vodka is the hardest to judge. And, and it's mostly because people like us who, who prefer intensely flavored spirits uh, don't get a chance to investigate the real subtleties that occur in vodka. And, and they're real. Yeah, there's some serious subtleties. Or what to expect from a wheat vodka as opposed to a potato vodka or as opposed to a rye vodka. And different styles of vodka, I guess, and, too, like European versus American or styles. I was told once by the, a Finnish distiller that he says, uh, uh, people think, you know, your vodka should have a long finish. He said, that's not what we do in Finland. We want it to come in crisp and citrusy and disappear. We don't want any finish. We want it to help you want to have some more food. So yeah, there are regional style uh, styles to contend with. Uh, in terms of, of resetting and focusing when you're tasting, when you get lost, and it happens every day. Uh, if you're going through this competition and you don't at one point say, I don't know what I'm doing. I have to really focus on this. Uh, I need some help, fellow judges. It was this terrible or great, I, I can't tell. Uh, then if, you, if that doesn't happen to you, then you're, you're too arrogant about your understanding spirits because you do get this range of quality that you wouldn't expect. You, you would think that everybody's stuff is at least going to be okay, you know, and, and so much of it is, well, not so much, but I would say 10 to 15% of the stuff we taste, you, 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 would, you wouldn't recommend it to anybody. It doesn't mean it's bad, it's just that it's not something you could professionally say, this is something you should try.
But as to as to what do you do? There's one thing you do is to step away from the table, smell your own hand, to sort of neutralize. Smell your own skin. Smell then? your own skin, so to neutralize what you're, because the room is filled with aromas. Your sense memory is sometimes gets overloaded. You just need to walk away and reset and come back and and remember what it is you're looking for, uh, and and what are the qualities that is expected from a spirit in your category. If it's uh, if it's wheat vodka, it's supposed to be plain. There may be some aromas of paper or or bread, but not a lot else. It's supposed to be clean and neutral. It's a it, it's not supposed to have so much impact. If it's rye, it's supposed to be spicier. So if it doesn't hit those marks, then you can say, well, that's not a good example of that. You may not like either one, but you can at least analyze what what it is compared to what it's supposed to be. So we're here talking with this Ivy Mix, perhaps one of the most famous female bartenders in America. Now, that shouldn't really be a thing if we were more egalitarian and sane. But Ivy, I really admire your work because you've been someone who's really made a lot of changes in the bar industry just by doing what you do, but really trying to make people more aware of the inequalities that are inherent in our business right now. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little? Yeah, so I mean, I think the biggest thing is that I started a all-female bartending competition called Speed Rack. It's also a breast cancer charity. It's kind of like a two-tier, fight the patriarchy, fuck cancer. Fuck cancer, <laughs> fight the patriarchy, yeah. drop the mic, we're out of here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ten years ago when I was trying to break into the cocktail bartending scene, I'd been bartending for like four years, just like beer shot, whatever. Um, the kind of consensus was like, no, you're a woman, you're a cocktail waitress. Our bartenders have mustaches and they wear suspenders and they... Right, 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 right. You fit the bill, congratulations. Um, but me with, you know, boobs and uh, no mustache, thank God. Uh, it was a little bit harder to fit into that image because, like, in the, this was the day where, like, bartender and cocktail bar was synonymous with speakeasy, was, some, was synonymous with, you know, X, Y, and Z, ancient dead male bartender that we all want to pretend to be. Like, I don't look like Jerry Thomas, obviously. So, so I decided to start Speed Rack with my business partner, Lynette Marrero, to literally create a platform for women to stand on and be like, I know you think you know what a bartender is supposed to look like and act like. But I'm just going to show you right here how awesome we are. And you can take it or leave it. And come to find out, people took it, which is great. Um, which is great. So They were really fun events. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and so, very informative, more importantly. Yeah. I mean, now we have people coming to events and, like, looking to hire people. And, like, you know, and it's really different. You know, here we are, this San Francisco Spirits Challenge. And um, there aren't that many women here. I think those are, like, the three other women. But well, Charlotte just left, so, like, that's it. Look, women in their natural element. Wow. <laughs> there they are in the wild. I'm crying right now. <laughs> so it's, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a problem that still we continue to, to fight. And now, like, everyone's becoming aware of the fact, like, Trump is president. He's talking about grabbing people's pussies. He's not good for women. And now we got the Me Too movement. We have all these different things happening. And now people are becoming more aware that it, can be really shitty to be a woman in lots of different ways. So I think Speedrack's mission is more than ever more important. Um, so we've been doing it for eight years. Just we're, I leave tomorrow after our final tasting. I go to DC with Derek Brown, who's here. And then on Monday, we have our last US event for the season eight. 
um, and I think we're going to hit one million dollars total raise in eight years. Um, wow, which is awesome for breast cancer for, against breast cancer. Jeez. I feel useless. That is amazing. That's amazing stuff. Great work. Um, what would you say to some woman who like wants to be a bartender and maybe feels intimidated by the kind of male-dominated society that they see when they walk into the bar biz? Um, try to go work for a woman. I mean, you know, I ended up going to go work for Julie, who's right over there, and now and I worked for her at a bar called Lonnie Kai, and then I worked for a bar called Clover Club, and there is one real good way to be appreciated by people, and it's if they also know what you were going through, you know, like reach out. Speed Rack has created a huge network of people. Like you don't have to look that far right now to find a woman probably who lives in your city that you can probably reach out to being like, eep, I'm scared because we probably aren't, we're all there at one point, male or female, you know, or other. Um, it's definitely possible to reach out to people now with the power of the internet. And you'll probably strike out a dozen times until you get someone who's like willing to be like, hey, cool, thanks for reaching out. Let's go get a coffee. But then that person who actually reaches out could actually help you. Now, in this world that we're in today, this professional tasters world, I know that most professional tasters, when, in terms of like who are working at the distillers, are women. Uh, generally speaking, women have better it has palettes. been said. It has been said that women have better palates. Yeah. What do you think? Coming in here, what are your personal strengths uh, in terms of being able to smell and taste? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, my specialty is in Latin spirits, so I, I happen to like dedicate a lot of my time to those particular tastes and smells. Um, but I think that as women, I mean, it has to do a lot more also with. I think that women have an inherent capability of just like letting things come to them rather than making things come to them. So like a man's gonna be like, I'm tasting a whiskey. I'm supposed to taste vanilla and banana, you know? And then it'll just be like, you know, vanilla, banana, vanilla, banana, you know? And then a woman will be like, what am I tasting? And it's kind of like more like acceptable and um, open to the things that are going on. Of course, we're not doing tasting notes here. We're just like, is it good or is it bad? I was doing tasting notes all day long. And then I sat down at the super taster table and I looked around at everyone around me and Nobody was writing out food oh, notes. I, I was like writing a book on my. Yeah, I write, I write, I write, I write notes because I want to like go back and be like, wait, what did I think about this? Um, but it's usually like things. That, it's not like banana papaya or whatever. It's more like, oh, is this astringent? Like, is that is the, kind of talking about the the quality of the distillate more or the aging? Yeah. Right on, yeah. right on. And you said you specialize in, in in Latin spirits. What does that mean? What's your favorite sippable? Um, well, you know, I own a bar called Leyenda in Brooklyn, New York, um, and everyone knows me as like, everyone's like, oh, it's a mezcal bar. You're a mezcal lady. Like, I'm on, I'm with Dale on my panel. It's like, you're the agave queen. And yes, I, I adore all things agave. Um, but I mean, probably mezcal, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. <laughs> there's a bottle, there's a guy, his name's, his name is Pedro Gideon, um, Pedro Gideon. Um, in in Guadalajara, in Jalisco, and he has this amazing bar called Mezonte, and he does some really delicious distillates of agave distillates that aren't like, you're mezcal, you're tequila, it's kind of like, like, fuck you to the DO, and if, I love that, it's like political, and it's delicious, so it's like, that's right up my alley, <laughs> so probably that. And you had a cocktail in the cocktail competition on the opening day. Oh, God, of the, yeah. Here. <laughs> Tell us about that. Uh, do you still make cocktails? At, you're a bar owner. How much time do you spend behind the bar actually like creating new concoctions for the bar? Quite a bit. Um, you know, we do a, a menu change once, uh, twice a year, and I usually sub put on two or three. 
Um, I do lots of work for brands, creating cocktail development. Honestly, I, that was like, I got called out on email, like, Ivy, why aren't you entering? And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and I, I never worked with vodka ever, ever, ever. So I was like, I want to do it that's actually about the vodka, you know, rather than trying to like use it as a blank canvas to paint shit onto. <laughs> so here we are talking with Mr. Tim McDonald, one of the original OG judges here at the San Francisco Wine and Spirits Competition. Now, this one we're really focusing on spirits, but there's also a separate, longer-lived wine competition that you're the, the chief judge for, is that right? Yeah, uh, I've been the chief judge for a number of years, and uh, last year I just took a little break, and uh, uh, I have been doing that one for about... 26 years and this one's 19 so you were you were just a child when you I started was, i don't even know if i was old enough to drink yet <laughs> <laughs> but uh it, it was a part of the san francisco fair you mean like at the state fair kind of vibe yeah like at the state fair kind of wow, vibe like the pie competition yeah pigs pie and uh and horse racing yeah <laughs> that's awesome so you've been doing this for a long time and how long have you been doing the spirit side of it since the inception day one uh, okay. I suggested uh, to Andy on the Lark, wait, we ought to do this. Uh, there's uh, nothing quite like it in the United States. And it was about 20 years ago. And then the first one uh, happened 19 years ago. And uh, uh, now it's about uh, 10 times the size as it was when we started. But so you just go around and do tasting competitions all the time? Or what's your, what's your job day to day? Or you... I, I'm a I'm a adult beverage publicist oh, okay. and so I have uh, I'm a corporate refugee I left all the big companies Hallelujah. and now I consult uh, with various producers of wine and spirits and I've uh, been on my own for about a dozen years and uh, it seems to fit real well but I've been in the judging circuit if you would call it something like that for about uh, 25 years do you feel like you have a unique skill set that makes you better at I mean what does it mean to be a professional taster, I guess, or, and how does one do that? Well, uh, when you know that you're going to walk into a room with other people, sit down at a table, blind, try some things, uh, whether it's wine or spirits, uh, you are, it's your point of view. But you're also playing with a team. And so it's uh, unlike, let's say, uh, 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 an example would be, you know, something like Wine Spectator, and there's one person that is the reviewer. Or uh, in spirits, it would be like maybe somebody uh, uh, like Fred, you know, and there's one person reviewing the whiskey. Here it's a team. It's a team of three or four persons, and it's pretty much you have to come to consensus. And what's really fun is that when you do your first one or your second one or your third one, and if you're in sync with the other ladies and gentlemen, you realize, oh, I must have an ability to do this, but it also comes from being an extreme taster. And I probably taste 5,000 wines a year wow. and a couple thousand spirits. So, wow. you, so you have your own point of view, but you're also thinking about what's commercially cool for the consumer. And, and in spirits, it's a little bit different because the categories are so vast. Sometimes you're thinking of how will this make a a better cocktail or when it's something like whiskey how is this going to taste all by itself mm -hmm. and uh, we do it blind we always have we have no idea whether it's a you know $25 or 
or a $250. And we've tasted product here that could be as high as $5,000 a bottle. And probably bottle setter is, you know, $12. And they're not price classed. So it's... Right, okay. Yeah, so you kind of have to... Like categories for like, this is a blended scotch, yeah. 16 years and older. This is a bourbon, 11 years and older. They do give you age statements sometimes. Well, it's perfect because it gives you context. And, um, and just like wine, you know, it's Chardonnay. And you may have grouping them together by vintage. Uh, in spirits, it's definitely by type. And all 12-year-olds should be tasted together, just like um, something like vodka, you know, where you have generally no age statements. But if there's something unique about the vodka, like it's wheat-based, rye-based, oat-based, you know, cane-based, beet-based, whatever it might be. Pot-stilled vodka Pot-stilled, etc. So uh, you put them in buckets and then they get to... And Andy said this at the opening remarks was that you don't compare them to each other. You look at them separate and you think, would a consumer really like this? Mm -hmm. You know, and there's been some flavored things over the years. I remember when I was on a panel with uh, Sean Ludford and Audrey uh, Saunders uh, uh, from Page Club. And uh, we had this thing that smelled a lot like cucumber. And we had no idea what it was. And we knew we were in the gin category. And it's like, well, what could this be? But Hendrix hadn't really gotten out of test market yet. And it ended up being the best gin of the show probably 15 years ago. Yeah. And then it hit. And it changed the whole yep. world of gin. Yep, it did. And then that's when that, that unique style breaking out, being a disruptor, mm -hmm. uh, and it became very popular. And look at Hendrix today. Do you see any other disruptors? Do you see something that's like uh, emerging in the beverage market that's going to be kind of the next big thing? Uh, yes, uh, but we always, uh, our crystal balls don't always tell the truth. Um. <laughs> My crystal balls just seem to bang together all the time. I have to muffle them with a pillow. Um, what does that mean? I think that uh, Pisco, I remember when it started being the cool category to get, Kashasha, Rum Agricole, um, Elderflower was kind of a breakthrough cordial, if you think about That's it. That's true. And uh, I think what we're seeing today are, you know, people trying to figure out the, how do we get to the American palate? Mm -hmm. Baijiu is Chinese. this year, I would say, is got some possibles That's and then there's new categories like we had that fun with uh, mezquila mm -hmm. and I, was, I remember when I first heard the idea and I went you know that's really brilliant but it's going to be hard to you know develop a new thing uh, but I have no doubt that it'll stick at some point. I have a feeling that that is something that's already been happening because scientifically speaking the Espanine is the ancestral mother of the Blue Weber yep. Agave. So I would think before that there was the divisions and the noms and all that, that it wouldn't be that uncommon to make an ensemble with Espanine and Blue Weber. That's right. It's and the just, mother and child reunion. Yeah. I should tell Sammy Hagar, it's the mother and child reunion. Yeah. Learn a Paul Simon song. Yeah. Like, don't, don't change anything, Sammy. You're the Red Rocker. We all believe in you. Crunch it. Yeah. Oh my. 
Oh, speaking about that, though, some of the new stuff. We had that uh, Sinjali. Oh, man. Bolivian. Bolivian brandy. Wow. Yeah, but different. Oh, yeah. And and some of the, the ingredients are totally unique. There's nothing else quite like it on the market. Did you try that one? Oh, I thought it was just amazing. And I think part of it is because they're using Muscat de Alexandria, which is one of the oldest grapes on the planet. It's a oh, noble varietal. Okay. Uh, it's been around. It's in lots of countries. How did it get to Bolivia? From the old world? You know, I think a lot of uh, uh, vint vintner uh, uh, growth happened uh, when uh, phylloxera hit Europe. Uh, so at the turn of the prior century, a lot of people uh, left that were in the wine business. Whether it was French, whether it was Spanish, you know, German, etc. Uh, there was the vineyards were just decimated at the you know there was no there were problems in 1900 right and a lot of people went to places that had uh, no uh, what I would call uh, climatic pressure and Argentina was this place that was the new world and they went there and they brought vine cuttings with them and they certainly planted Cabernet Malbec Muscat. Uh, things that were common, let's say, in Europe, uh, uh, whether regardless of country. So a lot of really cool grapes ended up in Chile, Argentina. Uh, and certainly uh, we uh, had vineyards here in the original 13 colonies, but they had to struggle with the notion that it's cold in Virginia and it's, or New York. So they tended to adopt things like Riesling and things that would survive the uh, brutal winters. The yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, European uh, varietals uh, migrated uh, during that era and ended up in Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, Chile, etc. Bolivia. And Bolivia. And so, uh, plus in, in, in the South American business uh, model, you had uh, uh, people that uh, really liked to drink. We had the, the terrible experience of prohibition, which, uh, really threw everything upside down for a while but meanwhile they were they were making wine they were drinking wine uh, beer wasn't as common in uh, these countries and uh, they had distillates and when you have uh, grapevines handy it's a good good uh, material to start with to try and make something out of oh and that's what allows you to preserve your wine that's where the history of fortified wines like sherry's yeah. and imports we're using a base distillate just a one-time distillate low wines to then dump back into your wine barrels to make it raise the proof of yes. your barrel yes, wines yes. and make them last longer and, and and the last longer was critical because you know there was no refrigeration back in those days we didn't have uh the same dynamics as uh, of luxury of uh having uh you know, uh, cellars that were cooled by climate-controlled uh, wine yeah, cellars. Correct. They didn't have those in the world. <laughs> yeah, Imagine you built that. them into the side of a mountain, or you buried. Uh, you you did went below the ground, uh, and uh, sometimes spoilage because it's a, a little bit more alive. The little trick would be add some uh, spirits to it, and it'd be a spirit that you made out of your grapes. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and sherry and port and uh, all fortifieds. You know, were real common up until the '60s. You know, America was a was definitely a sherry and port drinking uh, a wine culture yeah. before um, the '60s. And but we always drank whiskey. 
Oh, yes. and, and although we had a 13-year a, a, a gap, it was also, I think, a period of time when we actually drank more, uh, just uh, not legally, per se. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're about halfway through the day here at day two of the San Francisco Wine and Spirits competition. We're talking with Mr. Matt Myers. Matt, you've got, he runs bar programs in China, okay? So this is really compelling. What is that like? And, and how did you get connected to this big competition while you're doing all this amazing bridge work in China? I worked with MGM Resorts in Vietnam in a project where we actually had 13 food and beverage outlets, fully integrated casino outside of Ho Chi Minh City, beautiful property um, on Ho Tram. Ho Tram Beach, which is in Vong Tau area of Vietnam. Amazing, amazing property. And I was brought in because of my beverage knowledge, but I also uh, assumed more of the responsibility of overall food and beverage, so all the different restaurants and operations. And that was my first experience into working in Asia, China. And there are a few rules I had to adopt in order to really make great cocktails. Um, because the skill set is different. Here in San Francisco or even LA, you have great, passionate bartenders who are willing to learn and can come up with things on a fly because they have, one, it's different work culture and a different experience level. You start with people who have zero experience level and their work culture is different. Um, so you have to really scale down your, your recipes. No more than five ingredients. Everything should be well documented. So I have lots of PowerPoint presentations with pictures and ML measurements of actually everything because whether you're anywhere in Asia, you'll find culturally people are very looking forward to learn and they're very great at copying a recipe. But that means your recipe needs to be spot on and need, you need to have all those little details of the milliliter down because they'll follow the exact milliliter but also you need to contemplate the differences in ice when you build recipes for a hotel i mean this will be four i've done in asia china now i always recalibrate recipes even in a negroni i'll recalibrate based on the glassware and ice. Meaning the kind of ice machines that they have in-house? Correct. Because here, for example, we understand that we should have big, beautiful ice cubes, whether it's a cold draft or a hashisaki machine, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody gets that. They don't understand the need of the ice machine. So your ice machine is a workhorse that puts out little chips of ice, maybe not good quality ice. So you need to be able to either A, make good cocktails with the ice from the machines you have, which is the best solution, or B, even go as far as making your own ice, which is also complicated. Huge workload. Correct. And nowadays in Shanghai and in Beijing, you can even purchase the ice at great quality. Um, you can buy the, the spear for the Collins, the, the sphere, the whiskey, cubes. yeah, jumbo cubes. That's all available nowadays, but it, it took a long time for that to get there. Um, other than recipes, adjustment, when I train, 
I focus only on classics. So I don't even let bartenders come up with specialty cocktails until they've been with me for almost a year. So do you have like a hard five or hard ten? Like what's your, your definition of classics? How big is that classic menu? Typically there's about ten classics that we'll go through. Real quick, what are those? So Negroni, Old Fashioned, Whiskey Sour, Mojito. Um, I know it sounds stupid, but this um, the uh, Long Island Iced Tea. My goodness. Why? Because people because people Long want them. Because people want them. I know it sounds terrible, but if I'm gonna make it, I'm gonna make it correctly. It's a hotel. They can go pass out if they want. Exactly. It's fine. Exactly. <laughs> um, it's not smart drinking, in my opinion, but who am I to judge? Boulevardier, Aviation, Gimlet, and Pina Colada, Bloody Mary. No mint julep in there? Not that popular. <laughs> in a lot of time, I don't have good crushed ice. Or good mint. Or, or good mint, for that matter. I, I mean, mojito you're stuck with. You have to do a good mojito. That's everywhere in Asia. But if you can nail down those 10, you can pretty much... Do anything now. I I didn't mention the Aperol Spritz. The Spritz is really popular over the past two three years. I mean, the Spritz is everywhere. But if you nail down those, you can nail down everything else. So I typically focus on hammering down the classics. I spend a lot of time. I'm very hands on. Yeah. Just hammering those classics in and making sure that they're doing those correctly. But drinking culture must be very different in China. I've been lucky enough to travel to China a couple of times. And for one, they, they drink baiju there. For somebody who knows not what baiju is, can you explain it, please? So baiju is the spirit of China. It goes back almost 3,000 years. And it can be rice or sorghum based based on where in China it's being made. And usually fermented with koji, koji right? right? It's koji fermented. Correct. It's koji fermented. It For them, they handle the spirit differently, culturally, because I'm okay. So I've opened three hotels in China. I'm typically the only Laowai. I'm the only white guy there, right? So I do a lot of ceremonial drinking. I'm very invited very often invited to a private dining room with someone wealthy and hey cheers gambe you know and i speak as much mandarin as i can and hope they have a great time and that's how they consume baijiu so is there a ritual effect to it it, it, it is it's it's a very small shot glass mm -hmm. like the size of a thimble yeah. out of a little glass pedestal and you down it all at once. It's about the size of a sip, right? And you down it. But after, I mean, I've had enough where I've, it's put me on the floor before. But I don't think that they will embrace it quickly as for cocktails. In fact, I tried when I was with, when I opened Rosewood Beijing, and this was 2013, we had three different Chinese restaurants. We did our own hot pot, we had a Cantonese restaurant, and we had a Shandong Beijing like roast duck restaurant. And we featured Baiju cocktails. And they were good, they were well balanced, they were simple. Um, but Chinese clientele will still go to a mojito or a good old fashioned or what they recognize. They're not going to go for the Baiju cocktail. I think 
you know, this is an idea of me as a foreigner or me as my, my GM is a foreigner. And we're all thinking, oh, it's a great idea. Let's make Baijiu cocktails. And then at the end of the day, the locals are like, yeah. <laughs> It's funny. To them, like, yeah, it's nothing special. That they see it more as a ceremonial drinking, not so much like a cocktail. Now, for us as Americans to embrace it, it has to be a different way, right? Because our thought processes are different when it comes to ceremonial drinking. We don't have as many ceremonies as they do. Um, they. They do ceremonial style eating and drinking much more than we do, and I think if you see most ceremonial eating and drinking, it's it's, it's wine, it's beer. Yeah. So well, I, I, I don't think have in the mezcal world it's starting at least on the West Coast. I think there's a there's a starting to be an understanding and a respect for mezcal and how much work and how much history and culture there is behind mezcals. That there's a you know that Stichy Bayou thing where you're like kind of like having a little ritual copita. You know, you're really kind of taking your time with it, having a deep respect for the spirit, that perhaps, in my mind, could be an entry point for Baijiu. Now, you're, I, I get that you recently wrote, you wrote a book, or I'm, you're still I'm working so, on it? I'm pitching to publishers at the moment. Um, my book is called 30 Days, and it was based on me journaling 30 days of opening... Which is not a really 30-day thing, because yeah. building a new business in China has a, a lot of challenges, I imagine. And during this time, about three months, I have incredible struggles. I struggle with, um, I have an accident, so I'm unable to use my left arm. Uh, I'm sleeping with a, a sling on, and I'm emailing, and I'm opening this, this very complicated luxury hotel. Uh, I, I get depressed, I struggle with alcoholism, I have all these challenges. So during that time, other than trying to reflect on some of these challenges, I've put it together with lessons like self-help because I must have read over 20 self-help books within a year and a half time when the middle of this happened because I was running into so many challenges. Um, stress really can kill you. I mean, I've been floored by stress. I've dealt with very tense challenges during this time and I think that the, my book communicates not just to the hospitality industry those between behind a bar behind a stove or on the service floor will get it and be able to understand the challenges that we all face and I think also talking about depression is a little bit important as well because you know we are an industry of macho men and I think once we lost someone as dear as Anthony Bourdain. We, I think, many of the industry re started to realize like this is, this is serious. People really do die. I think anyone who has worked in a great bar and a great restaurant and a great, great hotel, had probably knows one or two people who are on the fringe, struggling with drugs or alcoholism or committed suicide. It's or very, you've lost friends. I've lost friends. Same, same here. So I think we all are part of it, but we don't want to talk about it. There's there's things that are subjects that we just want to escape from. 
But I talk about that in the book because I think that's important to shed light on those things. Yeah. Especially as being a foreigner, as an expat. Because when you are an expat, you are very isolated. Yeah. I'm in a situation where I'm an only foreigner. I speak very minimal Mandarin and I can't read the writing, but I have to exist. Yeah. So you have to come up with your own coping mechanisms to survive in an environment like that. So mm -hmm. these lessons I'm trying to share with everybody so that they can benefit from the struggles that I did during that time. Here we are talking with Pam Wisnitzer, bartender extraordinaire. Pam, you're coming in from New York, right? Yeah, from New York City. So do you do any bartending shifts right now? Um, I, not an active bartending shift. I, I've been doing it up until about like a few months ago um, and sort of seeing the transition happening as I'm now working with a lot more bartenders, younger bartenders in mentorship, which is really great. So getting them like actively behind like really great bars, giving them uh, positions of power, um, and platforms and programs that I put together because I think it's time that we start showcasing younger talent that really needs a space to shine. Absolutely. I'm a big proponent of bringing more women into the industry, you know, like uh, I helped to run the Bar Jackalope in LA and we pride ourselves on having mostly female staff and they are like amazing whiskey tasters. Do you focus on that as well, like trying to bring more women into the bartending world? I think it's really important that you create an open platform for every kind of person, uh, because there are those who are women, men, those who don't identify as either. Um, Bingo. And it's really important to ensure that you have a very balanced staff. Uh, I don't think you really have to slant it completely one way or another. Um, but remember that there's room for loads of different people, because everyone comes from different backgrounds. Um, and it's ensuring that the personalities um, are really there to support one another. So I really try to make sure I have a very dynamic staff everywhere that I go. Um, that's a really nice assortment of people from different cultural backgrounds. Um, you know, gender obviously is very important as well because it's those differences that allow everyone to sort of bond more. So the more homogenous a group is, the less that there actually is for everyone to connect with one another, but it's understanding differences that allows a better um, relationship to form between one another. Your guests, hopefully, are also going to be a range of different people from different backgrounds, and you want them to feel comfortable. So having a staff that is all accommodating, uh, because they do range um, in their backgrounds, is going to be more comfortable for the guest experience as well. Um, and, I, and again, I think the more conversation that we can have amongst the staff about our differences is going to allow us to become stronger moving forward. So, um, you know, it is really important, yes, having a lot of women behind a bar, but remembering that, like, men are also, it's important to have them there too because they're part of the conversation um, and it's also changing our viewpoints in order to all work together towards a greater common cause. Cheers to that. I think we can make a lot of changes in society by building better bars with better staffs. I, I believe that for yeah. sure. Now what does it mean to be a professional taster? Like this is a kind of niche world in a way like the idea that like these people come together from all these different backgrounds and tasting all these different spirits. How did you get into this role, like where you're... I don't know, I snuck in. You snuck in. You know, it, it, is, it is really funny because this is my second year and I'm completely honored to have even gotten the email last year about it. Um, I've been actively tasting spirits um, at a much more like, serious level since about like 2011, 2012. Um, I did bar five day, which is a good benchmark for anybody who's looking to learn how to taste. Um, it's obviously one of the most highly accredited programs in sort of the cocktail world space um, where tasting is everything because you have to do blind tasting to pass that 
course. Um, beyond that, I got um, I was very fortunate to work with Paul Peckalt um, with his Spirits Challenge as well, and to work in the back of house, and he would work with you on tasting. Um, you know, doing a lot of judging for like WSWA um, and a few other times where the competition would come to, like this competition would come to New York. Um, and so what's nice has been really honing my tasting skills over the years, um, sitting down with lots of brands, sitting down with lots of category tastings on my own, going to seminars, um, and really find, really trying to find the intricacies of, of a spirit and looking at how even a spirit that you taste one year, how it's different from the next year and understanding maybe what happened that year in distillation or where in, that happened with the product, what was harvested. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really important that you keep your palate um, attuned to these differences because, you know, making a daiquiri with one rum one year may not taste the same the second year or the lime is off or it's so um, necessary to really be able to like pinpoint all those components. Do you have any do's or don'ts in terms of like coming to this competition to be a judge? Do you stay out until five o'clock in the morning, smoking cigars and and, and drinking uh, really well, old I rum. Or I mean, how do you how do you nah. go about like keeping yourself able to even do this job? Well, I don't smoke anything. That's a personal choice. Um, I do say that if you um, if you're accustomed to a certain type of palate, so if you are a smoker, you shouldn't stop smoking because that's going to alter the way that you taste. All of a sudden, your taste buds will, will change if you just say, "I'm going to not smoke the month before tasting." That's actually bad for you. Um, so not saying smoking is great for you, but I'm saying that you need to keep with your with your rituals. So it's California. Not what? Um, you know, be careful of what you do eat and drink in the morning. Um, coffees and teas have a lot of of astringency, and that can also mess up your palate before you get going because your palate's actually ready to taste first thing in the morning. Nothing's really in it. Nothing. It's, it hasn't been uh, disturbed by other flavors. So that's why you try to taste first thing when you wake up. Uh, and then the other thing is I keep a very healthy lifestyle. So I try to work out every day. And when I'm here, I work out in the morning because it gets the adrenaline going. You're, I'm awake. Um, I'm alert. My brain is ready to go. Um, I don't stay out too late. I don't drink too heavy um, at night because there's nothing worse than being hungover <laughs> and tasting a spirit. You just don't want to – you don't want to smell it. You don't want to taste it. It's going to conjure up some bad feelings. Um, so you do – it's – you know, this is a professional weekend. We are working. And we have to remember that this isn't just come taste some stuff and go out and play. This is this is work. And there are a lot of brands that have invested a lot of time and money into our opinions. And we have to take that seriously. Absolutely. And it's with a lot of honor that we get to taste these products as well. I agree 100%. Along those lines, uh, can you speak a moment about uh, the importance of wellness in bartending? Because I, that's one of my personal focuses is trying to encourage the bartenders that I train to have activities in their life that are about like – do some power yoga, be swimming, have a gym membership, go on hikes, that kind of thing. How important do you think wellness is in, in the bar industry? I think wellness is important in any industry. Um, I think especially in the hospitality world, it's extremely important because we do work long hours um, on our feet. We spend hours talking to other people, exerting a lot of energy onto others instead of getting that energy invested into ourselves. So um, it's a, like the very famous mask model, they say, you know, when you're on an airplane, plane goes down, the masks come off. They always say to put yours on before you put it on to a child. The reason is if you can't take care of yourself first, you, there's no way you can take care of other people. So for me, health and wellness is so important because if this vessel isn't ready to go, and I'm not talking about getting skinny or like getting shredded muscles, I'm talking about being strong. If you're not strong here and mentally, you're not ready to interact or do anything with anybody else mm -hmm. or even honor yourself on the floor when you're, you know, in the front of house. 
Um, I started incorporating um, exercise actively back into my lifestyle about five years ago, like very actively. Um, I do power yoga, um, I do cardio, lift weights, go to workout classes, um, and it takes 21 days to form a habit. I tell people this a lot because, you know, the one-off yoga classes with a brand is cool, but that doesn't teach you a sustainable model to take care of yourself. So I tell any bartender, any person in hospitality, if you want to start getting active, make a commitment of three weeks, 21 days, and say every day, it doesn't matter if it's five minutes or it's an hour, move. Because your body will start craving movement, and it's a beautiful incorporation into your daily routine. Um, I can't stress enough how it's changed my life, how it's changed a lot of people's lives. It makes me able to tackle anything that comes my way in this industry. I feel stronger than ever. Um, and it allows me to be stronger and be there for my staff and my friends and my colleagues and coworkers. Mm -hmm. And for the guests, I always yeah. feel like a bar is a place that people kind of seek refuge in. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people come in there and they've got problems and, and they're, they're feeling down. Yeah. And our job is to kind of make them feel better about life. We can heal people by lending them an ear, by really seeing who they are and giving them some of our time and being present for them to tell their story to us. Mm -hmm. And you can't, like you say, you, you can't be doing that and helping other people feel more healthy unless you're doing it for yourself yeah, first. Yeah, you know, like we're, uh, people who work in bartending especially are sponges, and I say this a lot, um, a sponge that you don't wet beforehand is no good, right? It's just, it's a hard sponge and you can't do anything with it. You can't slop up any mess, you can't clean with it, right? So that's kind of like, if you don't do anything for yourself, you don't invest in yourself, like working out, you're kind of like that dry sponge, you know? But if you take the time to empower yourself, make yourself ready, and you like wet that sponge and you get it clean and pristine and ready, it can handle any kind of mess, and then you can wring it out, you can wet it again, and it's ready to go. And we should be sponges in some ways. Like wet, sponges. That we are wet sponges. Wet sponges, <laughs> not dry sponges. But that we have the ability to you know, clean up other people's messes, but also bounce back and breathe and have time for ourselves. Um, so yeah, so I tell everyone, urge everyone, it's great to be selfless, and it's great to feel like we're doing great work listening to people taking care of our guests but you have to take care of yourself first and it's not selfish it's just necessary Okay, so we're between rounds of the sweepstakes. This is the final day of the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. We have to go back in. There's just a couple more rounds before we're done. But I wanted to chat with Enrique Sanchez here, another first-time judge. So That's right. we're, we're babies. We're babies. We are. Did you get kind of lost when you started out? I know for me, the first couple panels, I was like, I, I thought I knew what I was doing. I feel like I'm a pretty good taster, but I got surprised about... Um, for a few takes that I have done today, uh, or even these past two days, some of them I'm like, oh, I like that one too much. I'm wondering what it is. So I'm just keeping it a little mark and figuring out what it is. And I might be really excited that I like that, or I might be really disappointed that I like that. But whatever it is, I'm just feeling my gut. And I think that's, like you say, I mean, I'm, I might not be an expert of vodka or show you that we're just talking about it, but, uh, but I think I just feel in my gut. And if, if I feel it's a good steal and I hitting every point that I, my mouth is, is complete and I'm like, I'm going for it. I'm just, um, but yeah, there is a few uh, liqueurs that I taste a couple of days ago. I was like, oh my God, all right, maybe it will be a room in the market. 
And I've just got to put myself into that position. It's, it's not for me, but someone will like that. At, at least it's a good it's a liqueur or it's a good spirit that I'm not enjoying it that much, but it's, it's still, it's good. It has no flawless, it's, it's, it's just a good, uh, a good brand, I guess. Um, so very interesting, I'm just, Follow my guides and see what's up. <laughs> I yeah. like that. Yeah. Follow your intuition. Do you have any particular favorite spirits? What's your favorite category? You know, I've been enjoying it so much these past two days, but I haven't tasted any agave. And I, and agave is my spirit. Even I'm from Peru, and I have not tried piscos either. You didn't get any piscos no in your piscos, panel? I no, didn't get to taste any piscos No either. piscos. And I was talking to, I think it was Dave Nipoff. And he's like, yeah, we have four Peruvians. I'm like... Uh, what are they? What are, was I? I mean, I, I wanted to taste some pisco. There was one acholado and torontelos in Italy, I believe, which I was, I was kind of like sad for not tasting piscos or not tasting agave. Uh, but um, once again, when I, I grew up in Peru, so we drank a lot of rum back then. And having a fly of rum, it was like, oh my God, this is, it comes back to me. And I think rum, I figured out this weekend that I, Still in my blood. I, I I love a lot of rum, and I I'm glad on the sweeps. It was one amazing rum. I was like, yeah, super excited about it. Mm-hmm. So, I so. think one of those rum agricoles, I think, was a Mexican rum. I'm pretty you think sure. So? I think you think so? Was. I mean, that was that was delicious. Uh, but uh, it was briny. It was briny. It was, it was like some fruit notes. It was a really high proof. I think it was 62. Yeah. Um, Damn or 53. Good. But it was it was delicious. I mean. I think once again, I think I feel really lucky to be here and, and hang out with a bunch of cool guys, cool girls, and, and from all over the country. And actually, people from Canada is here too. That's so, right, Nate's from Canada. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so super dope. I mean, it's, it's been a blast totally. for sure. I, I learned a ton, like getting to taste baju for the first time and like really compare bajus. I don't even know what the definition of a good bajo versus a bad bajo is. So I want to learn more about that. Shoju's the same way. My brother's Korean, so I I have a passion for shoju, but I really don't have that much knowledge about it. It's a low wine, so it's only distilled once. So for me, it's a little watery and hard to get into, but I think I need to just educate myself on it more. Like, what is it supposed to be? True, and I think once again, we just had to keep tasting more, you know? And and, uh, Bayou was the first time when I went to China about three years ago. I went with my family because we're going to hike the Great Wall. Yeah. And then we were hiking the Great Wall. And then we were like, so you hike for about eight miles and then you sleep in this little town. And the next day, you wake up in the morning, they take you to the next town. So one of those days, we were uh, driving for the next town and uh, there was a cyclist competition. So we couldn't go any farther. So it's like, okay, well, um, we're going to do lunch now. We're like, okay, so we got into this little restaurant. Big round table, and there was a little bar. And I was like, Nah, I gotta go to the bar. So I went to the bar, and I was like, What's that? She's like, Oh, by you. It's like, and I had a translator, um, and, and I said, Can I try? She's like, Okay, haha. They were laughing at me. I was like, This is 55%. Okay, no problem. And I loved it. It was like, Oh my God, this is good. So I made a drink. Uh, I had some cherry juice or whatever. So I mixed it up. I served it with the, with the group that I had. We were like 15. Everybody's loving it. I was like, nice. And then, and then the guy was like, he was laughing. He was like, oh, you like Baju? I was like, I guess. So he brought a little gallon. It was like big five, six gallon plastic. He's like, try this. And I was 62%. And I tried and was like, whoa, this is amazing. I love it. He's like, yeah, this guy loves Baju. And he, this, he was saying that that Baju was from Mongolia, which a friend of him brought him. And, and I said, man, can I buy some? 
and I just got a plastic bottle of water, so I dump it and I fill it up, and I was like, how much is it? He was like, it's on me. So I have a giant's hat, and I was like, I give it to him, it's like, all right, that's what it is. <laughs> you gave so a giant, giant. giant. <laughs> Yeah, so I got a little bit. San Francisco. It was, it was amazing. I, I think that was my first uh, time that I got introduced to the, the spirit, and and, and uh, I think two, two days ago on Friday, they were a super tasting and I had five by us. I was like, wow, this is awesome. So one of those we tasted today and that was one of the, uh, yeah, the finals. The finals and it was impressive, 62%. I have to fill out a W9. I guess I got paid for all this fun. It's ridiculous. It's been an amazing experience. Thank you to all the staff at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. I hope I get invited back again. I got the food sweats. I tried to pile it in there to absorb some of those uh, tasters. Even spitting, you still get this thing. I think I lost a whole layer of skin inside my mouth. Thanks for checking us out on Instagram. We're going to be posting more stuff, you know, stuff that we shot while we were here. So tell your friends, Spirit Guide Society podcast, spiritguidesocietypodcast.com. And tell your friends who want to learn more about the spirits they love. We're doing our best to educate ourselves so we can share that knowledge with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show is produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget. Drink to remember. Remember.